Hi, Foxies. The episode you're trying to listen to is right around the corner, but first, we need your help. You may have noticed that there are no ads during the Fox and the Foxhound. We prefer this, being ad haters ourselves, but we need your help to keep it that way. If you love this show, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash the Fox and the Foxhound. We have Patreon tiers starting at just $1 a month. And not only will you get fun extra content and an unedited cut of every episode two days early, you'll be directly responsible for keeping the show going in all of its ad-free glory. Thanks to all of our existing patrons, past patrons, and hopefully future patrons. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Fox and the Foxhound. We're so happy to have you. If this is your first time, my name is Amanda, and my husband Kevin and I are reading through the Harry Potter books together. While I'm an established fan, he's a complete Potter virgin. We started the series and the show during the countdown to our wedding. And now, as we work through the final book in the series, we've been married for two years and have our first child on the way. While our primary goal is to work through the Potter series as literature, discussing the story and applying some of the wisdom we find to our life together, be warned, tangents lie ahead. And singing and grown-up jokes, some occasional toilet humor, and fairly pervasive adult language. Guard tiny ears accordingly. Let's do this. In a world (laughs) where effects are the only thing that matters, (laughs) story and character come second. (laughs) We bring you the Deathly Hollers, part due. (laughs) So I guess it goes maybe without saying, but what'd you think of this movie, Kev? Honestly, I was in it. You were in it. I was in Mm -hmm. it. I was like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. This is not a bad representation of things. Mm -hmm. Love, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Love the grip hook scene. Mm -hmm. Love the shell cottage scene. Yep. We'll talk more about it. This is good. This is good. You said to me, actually, like, because you... We're probably an hour, hour and a half into the movie. And you were like, I don't dislike it the way that you talk about disliking it. And I said to you, you haven't gotten to the parts I dislike yet. (laughs) And it's the Battle of Hogwarts. Right. And then once I got to the Battle of Hogwarts, I was like, you know, sometimes people set out to make a movie. Mm -hmm. And you watch it and you're like, oh, it sucked. The characters weren't developed. There was no story. There was plot inconsistency, etc. But it's hard to come up with an original story. Yeah. It's hard to make movies. But when you already have the story created, <laughs> yeah. all you have to do is take that story, which was written down, and just make believe that story. Make that or visual. you could just do whatever you want because all you care about is idiots who buy Twizzlers, that, which is what they see the audience as. Yeah. This because is- they exist – yeah. In in the world of they know what film is about. We're just morons that buy popcorn. This is a Michael Bay Harry Potter movie, essentially, is what it is, really. Although I have to say, like when we go through magical moments and muggle moments, there's some great ones. There's some really good stuff in this movie. So like basically the vast majority of my magical moments are like up until like maybe a quarter of the way through the Battle of Hogwarts. Yeah. And the vast majority of my muggle moments are after that point. It's it's the whiff of the ending, the complete 
yeah. and utter miss that is the ending of this movie. Yeah, that's what got to me. Ugh. So much that it ruined the whole movie for me. Absolutely. But there were some fun moments. Very fun and moments. Let's, let's wrap. Let's chop it up. Let's let's chop it up. So what do they say in the, in the baking show? That's conflab. Oh no, that's um that's the makeup show. That's oh. the um oh, conflab. G- uh, glow up. That's glow the name up. of that. Yes, which there's a new season of that that I need to watch. So as a reminder, we do magical moments, we do muggle moments, wah, wah, and then we talk about our three favorite casting choices that they made for this movie. We recast one role each, and then we have a cinematic marriage lesson. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And That's, then we talk a lot of S in between. We talk a whole lot of S in between. <laughs> so I, for one, would like to start with magical moments. Let's start off on a positive note. Yes. So you mentioned this. This is pretty much where the movie starts. But the first thing on my list are the conversations with Ollivander and Griphook in Shell Cottage. Yes. So what is it that you really liked about this? Well, this will also come up in one of my favorite casting decisions. Okay. It's Warwick Davis as Griphook. Yeah. When Harry says, I need to talk to the goblin. And he goes in the room where Griphook is. The acting is so it's freaking really good. good. Yeah, it's nuanced. It's yeah. thoughtful. I love Warwick's choices. Warwick oh. Davis is one of my favorite actors of all time. He's so good, and he doesn't get a lot of chances to really show his acting chops. Right, especially now he's been acting since he was a teenager. Yeah, I mean he did his first film when he was nineteen. I want to say. Wow. So. He's been acting a really long time, and he doesn't get a lot of chances to really show the chops that he has for developing characters as an actor. Well, and when you think about the fact that he also plays Flitwick in this movie. Yeah. Like, it's so cool. And they give a lot of time. The camera gives a lot of time to Griphook. Yeah. They really stay on him. Yes. And the fact that he's doing it in prosthetics... Yes, with the, the awesome. teeth, the pointy teeth yeah. that he has, like he and those those weird oh, eyes. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, Griphook looks amazing. It like I feel like they really capture the look. Yeah. Of him, you know, as this kind of like he's definitely sort of a sinister presence, not because he's a goblin, but because you know, I mean, he double crosses them. Like Griphook yeah. is, and I feel like they kind of telegraph. That he has not great intentions without totally telegraphing that he has yeah. not great intentions. But you also believe that he believes what he's saying about yeah. what belongs to goblin culture and what doesn't. Yes. And I just, the thing that I love about these two conversations is that, you know, they're both really short. The conversation with Ollivander and the conversation with Griphook, they are far shorter than they are in the book. And there are definitely some things added in that are not the way they spoke to each other in the book. Yeah. But I feel like they made really cool choices here. So like one example with Griphook is when, um, completely paraphrasing, but Harry says to to Griphook, like, um, or sorry, actually Griphook says to Harry, how did you come about that sword? And Harry's response is, it's complicated. And then he says, why did Bellatrix Lestrange think that this was in her vault? And Griphook says, it's complicated. You know, like that kind of yeah. banter, which is very like movie banter, but yeah. I really like it. Yeah, it was great. I think it's so good. And then the Ollivander conversation, one of my favorite line deliveries in definitely in this movie and maybe in any of the movies is when Ollivander is describing Bellatrix's wand and he just looks at Harry and says, unyielding. It's just such a cool... Yeah. 
like he looks afraid, but he also, the, and especially the way Ollivander's described in the book as being someone who's like so fascinated by like wand lore that you kind of don't know, like he's almost like speaking in admiration about Voldemort when Harry first meets him in book one. Well, he's, you know what he reminds me of? The people who talk about pottery, like at the Liberty Antiques yeah. Festival and stuff. Yeah. Because they can just, they're guys that can just look at a, a pot and go, oh, Randolph County, Ash Glaze, crazy. probably mid 19th century southern part of the county because they can see the clay that's in it and they recognize the clays wow. and they recognize the tradition of how tall it is. Yeah. And so when he takes the wands and he's like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Maple with unicorn hair. Yeah. And he's like listening to Draco's wand and, and telling Harry, like, I sense its allegiance may have changed, yeah. which is from the book. I mean, that's something yeah. he tells him in the book. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's the acting. I think it's the fact that, again, this is kind of the David Yates special, but maybe my memory is off, but it's not really underscored with any music. It's just these very quiet kind of dark tone wise conversations that open this movie. And I just, I think they're really yeah. good. They give the actors the time. Yes. The the camera gives them the, t- I'll tell you a movie that does that beautifully. That's a modern movie is Nope. Oh, okay. Jordan Peele's Nope. There are so many scenes where you're like, thank you mm-hmm. for leaving the camera on the actor. Yeah. Especially when the actor's not saying anything. Yeah. Let the actor tell, fill in the gaps for the audience of the story. Yeah. That's what they're there to do. That's what they're delivering. Absolutely. Very cool. So, I mean, next for me is the, is the Gringotts sequence. I thought we would just kind of talk about that. Yeah. So that's what I have on my magic moment, specifically the dragon. I literally have specifically the dragon yeah. <laughs> on my notes and the Gemino curse, the way that that is shown, which remember that's where everything they touch within Bellatrix's vault oh, multiplies. Exactly how I imagine in my it's head. Terrifying. It's so good. And like the there's even like a I mean again the sound design. You mentioned the sound design in Deathly Hallows Part One. The sound design, I don't know if it's the same sound designer. I would imagine it is. The sound design is so brilliant in this movie. Like the way that it sounds when they're multiplying and then clattering to the floor. Like it seems like something so simple, but it just, oh, and the math works out Mm -hmm. because the things don't multiply, they don't multiply infinitely. Right. They would fill up the entire world. Right. What happens is you touch one and it multiplies, say, like a hundred times. Right. You touch another one and it multiplies. Yeah. So you see as they're squirming around and moving and touching more of them, they're going and going and going, but it's kind of like popcorn. Yeah. It's like once they stop touching it, you can hear them slowing down. Yes. Ding, ding, that's ding, what it is. ding, ding. That's exactly ding. And then they touch is. new ones and it's like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. There's a real popcorn. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's yeah, perfectly Yeah. It looks great put. when Ron's face is almost completely covered up. Oh, It God. reminded me of jumping in one of those like deep foam pits like they have at gymnast places. Yes. Or these trampoline parks that kids go to. And break many limbs. Which I'm like really terrified of. Like I want to go to a trampoline park <laughs> because I want to like swing into a foam pit. Yeah. Or do like a wicked, wicked jump off of something into a foam pit. Yeah. 
I don't want to go there because I think it's going to smell like feet. <laughs> it, it, I mean, probably. Yeah, let's be honest. It probably smells like feet. Yeah, the dragon looks amazing. The way the dragon moves and the fact that they really capture the abuse and neglect and mistreatment yeah. of this creature in its movements, the way that it's kind of shaky, you know, I feel like they captured that so well. One thing I also appreciate that they've always done in this series with the movies with dragons mm-hmm. is that they take into consideration their weight. Yeah. So remember the, uh, I can't remember who it was, but the other dragon scene when the dragon's like walking around Hogwarts on the roof trying to get around. Oh, that would have been Goblet of Fire. Goblet yeah. of Fire. And the shingles are like shearing off every time it steps down because yeah. you think this thing weighs tons. Yeah. It's like a blue whale. Yeah. I mean, there are just so many things that they clearly really thought about. So yeah, the dragon's amazing. So next on my list is Ariana's portrait. Ariana Dumbledore's portrait. Just always really like the way that looks and that whole sequence of like where she walks away because the way it's described in the book is like she, it, it's not the normal motion of a portrait, yeah. you know, for her to walk like deeper into the painting. Yeah. She becomes smaller. She becomes smaller. And then like to return and the fact that like you can almost kind of see for just a second, this other figure behind her, but they don't make it cheesy, like painted Neville, you know, yeah, like, yeah. That would be weird. I'm surprised they didn't. <laughs> um, so Ariana's portrait is great. I have more to say about that whole moment with Aberforth. Okay. <laughs> this is one that does not make a lick of sense, but it's really fucking scary. And so I like it. And it's when the first, like, let's call it broadcast from Voldemort in the Great Hall. And there's like these two little girls just like screaming in the corner. It's terrifying. It doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't. Why? They would, it. You yeah. hated it? Okay. I, hated it. I yeah. think that it, it, appropriately sets a very eerie tone. It definitely scared me. Yeah. But the reason I hated it is because when he makes like the really big announcement, listen, like come out and join me and none of you will be hurt. The war is over. Just come and be on my side. All that stuff. I hated how that went down. That's one of my muggle moments. So we're jumping ahead. Oh, okay. Well, I'm referring specifically just to the screaming in the great hall in terms of like, Snape's departure and all of that. I think it's just really rushed. It, it didn't make it into my muggle moments. Like, I don't think it's that bad. Yeah. But the whole thing is just so rushed and it really right. should be more epic between McGonagall and Snape, quite frankly. Let's talk about the gray lady scene. Hel- oh, the Helena Ra- Ravenclaw scene. She was awesome. Yeah, I love that scene. That's definitely a magical moment for me. Do they abridge her story? Sure. To me, that's kind of an appropriate cut to make for the movie. Yeah. Um, but I think that she looks amazing. There's one moment where it's almost as though her face like stretches and contorts a little bit when she gets angry. Yeah, it's scary when she Fucking screams. It's terrifying. a little bit of a did you put your name in the goblet of fire? It's a little or Lupin going, Who the fuck are you? <laughs> Who the fuck are you? I'm a werewolf. <laughs> yeah, it's um that whole scene I thought was really good. I think the next one is one that we both have on our list. Pierre Totem Locomotor. Yeah, this looked cool. The knights so. dropping down and stuff. Now, at first when I saw them, I was like, I wish they were a little less Lego game. Oh, okay. And a little bit more like actual suits of armor. Yeah. But I liked it. Once really they were like, like in mass, yes. I thought it was cool. The scene where Flitwick 
is running in the middle of them and the giant is like swinging at them. They're fighting the giant. I thought that was a cool moment. Very well done. So Pierre Totem Locomotor, here's what I really like about that. The When the statues jump down after McGonagall invokes them, like kind of like what you were saying about the dragons, here are these, com- I, I assume, completely CGI yeah. you know, figures, but you can tell their weight because of the way they drop. And they drop yeah. and they're st- Stone still. So like they move, jump, and are almost like statues again, and then they stand up and then they walk. And I love that when they drop, they land on one knee. Yeah. As if to say, we're here to serve you. I'm getting chills. Yeah. It's so good. So awesome. I also really love the addition of I've always wanted to use that spell by McGonagall. Yeah, and how proud she is of it. It's because that's nowhere in the book. And I think that like you could almost make a case for that being a very un-McGonagall moment. But I think it's great. I kind of liked it too. I, it yeah. brings her some like playfulness and humanity, which we don't get to see much. Yeah, which character. I feel like the actress brings that to McGonagall. Oh, Maggie Smith. Yeah. Definitely. What's next for you? Uh, the Fiend Fire, which I was kind of worried about, looked okay. pretty cool. It did look cool. I would have liked to have seen like maybe a little bit more. Yeah. Figures in the fire. Yeah. But when you did see them, they were kind of subtle to the eye, and I thought it was cool. Yeah, I agree. It was scary. I think if they had gone more with the figures, it almost would have been cheesy. Yeah, the Fiend Fire is almost one of those moments, like in Indiana Jones with the big uh, rock, the round rock that's rolling after him. It's like, holy shit. When you see Ron come running back, and it's whipping around the corner and it's taking everything in its path. Oh, that's such a good moment. I mean, in general, I think the beginning of the battle, like that first quarter of the battle or so, is really good. The way that magic is represented. So when they're all casting their protective charms and it's kind of like out of their wands, like that's a really cool thing. And the way that it creates this just like dome and all the individual so spells cool. like gel together to uh, beautiful. Yeah. Love that. And there are some really great acting moments like Fred and George on that tower, just kind of looking out at, at what's to come and asking each other, like, are you okay? I mean, I feel like the actors in this movie at this point anyway are appropriately scared. No one is like walking around king shit of fuck mountain. We're going to win because we're the good guys. I love that Fred and George moment because it's like they're both acknowledging that they're scared. Mm -hmm. But you can see it in their eyes that they're like, this is what we've been waiting for. We've trained our whole lives for this shit. Like, yeah, we're ready. There are tears in their eyes, both of them. And they're ready to die. And one of them does. (sighs) It's so sad. Yeah. When you know what's going to happen, it makes that scene even harder. But yeah, I think there's some really great acting moments in like all of the kind of preparations and everything. Love the fiend fire. I think that whole scene is pretty good. What about Snape's memories sequence? Or I guess before we talk about that, I mean, Snape's death is, I think, appropriately censored, considering who the kind of intended audience is. Like, you really don't okay see it happen. It. Yeah. I was okay I was with that, too. fine with it. Because it's really very gruesome, the way that he dies. And I'm, I mean, I, for one, am glad that it's not just, like, very gratuitous. Yeah, the flashbacks were great. Okay, so I yeah. remember you saying... I don't mind this. I really like the way that they did this. The way they flash between his memories 
very cool. You know, I feel like they hit most of the highlights. I'll tell you the one thing I hate about it, though, is the addition, because this is not in Snape's memories in the book, of him entering the Potter's home at the end and cradling dead Lily while a literal baby screams in the corner. Like, you're not going to comfort the screaming baby. Like, I'm I'm supposed to be very sympathetic to you in this moment. I also thought it was dumb that they gave the little kid version of him the same haircut. Okay. If we don't give him the same haircut, no the, one will the Twizzler buying audience is so fucking dumb. <laughs> they won't know this is Snape. Okay, that's an interesting point, too. Oh, come on. That's so <laughs> fucking silly. Like, people don't have the same haircut their entire lives. I mean, if anyone would, though, it's Snape, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, in general, I think the sequence is well done. And him entering the Potter's home, as much as I kind of hate that scene, I will say the placement of it in the memories is very cool because it's like that event happens and the memories kind of move past it. But then at the end, when Dumbledore is telling Snape at a certain point, Harry's going to have to die because he's a Horcrux. And it's at that moment that the movie shows you this made up from the book anyway, memory of him entering the Potter's home. I think that's impactful. The whole thing though is like, are you making a movie to tell a story to an audience who's not familiar with the books? Yeah. Or are you making a series of films for people who have read the books and we're supposed to just fill in the gaps? Because it's like you're trying to do both, and you suck at both of them. But I don't know, though. I don't know that the Snape's memory sequence, I don't know that that drops any really crucial info, though, that exists in the book. Like, I think that it pretty much covers what needs to be covered. I mean, what did they cut out of that? They cut out a lot of the Petunia Lily stuff. Yeah. You know, and they cut out, they basically skip from sorting to James and Lily are married. So they essentially skip over all of Hogwarts. But we kind of already knew that that had happened. So I don't know that that sequence chops anything out. I just think that it's kind of trite that he like walks into the Potter's home. It also sort of like raises a lot of questions like, okay, so A, when he walks into the Potter's home, like, okay, why would he have been able to see it if he he wasn't a secret keeper? Why was he there? Like, it, because otherwise the audience won't get what we're saying. <sighs> I got a little burned out in this movie with the, the you know, Harry flashing into Voldemort's mind, flashing through the memories. These yeah. scenes that go, whew, and then yeah. they become a, another scene and then whew, become another scene. It's like, okay, dude, you've done this 47 times. You're right. You have a really good point there, especially, and I think it does kind of diminish the the prince's tale part of this movie because we've flitted back and forth between Harry and Voldemort's consciousness so much at this point that like shifting perspectives into like another consciousness is kind of just like, eh, okay, been there, done that. Whereas right. it should really be a, kind of a bigger deal. Maybe, yeah. You know, I roll. Okay. And my last magical moment that I have is the, uh, the King's cross, purgatory heaven type of thing. Tell me more. I loved how it looked. Oh, the yeah, little I mean, slimy amazing. Voldemort body was perfect. It was perfect. The King's cross as like a white imaginative mist. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I really love that scene. The, the, especially the way it's like lit visually. Yeah. Visually. It's really beautiful. I only have two more magical moments actually. And one of them, I have a question mark cause I don't know if it's magical for me, but I, I, I don't know the resurrection stone scene. 
Um, I think the way that they look is pretty cool. You know, like his parents and Lupin yeah. and Sirius. I think the fact that, especially when he reaches for his mother's hand and she's almost like a hologram. Yeah. So, like, I think that's kind of cool. Um, and the tone is okay, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm missing some of the impact of that scene, but that also may be because that's my very favorite chapter of the entire series. And so I hold it to a bit of a high standard. And also, you know, that scene is... You know what it is? It's the baseball players coming out of the field in Field of Dreams. So much, yeah. And Kevin Costner looks out, and oh, here they come. I'm going to start crying if I think about that movie. And they all start walking out of the cornfield. Yeah. And you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. That's what that scene was like meant to be. That's a really good analogy. But more, it was just like, hey, cameos. You know, yeah, they like, sort of just appeared instead of, yeah, yeah, maybe that's kind of like... I have mixed feelings about it. It was okay. It, it was, was not okay. my least favorite part of the whole thing. So I kind of like, yeah. you know, you got to practice a lot of forgiveness with these films. You do. And my final magical moment is literally just a, a single frame of the movie because everything on either side of it is such garbage. But it's the single frame of Neville killing Nagini, except the part where she turns into weird vapor instead of just being a corporeal fucking snake whose head gets chopped off, which is, we'll get to it, I have so much more to say, the entire goddamn point of the series anyway. But <laughs> Neville, just like that kind of swing up with the sword, that's kind of an all-time image yeah. from the movies. And Even I think when it's you great. destroy a Horcrux, it still exists. It's just damaged or cracked or burnt. But no, everyone turns into vapor. They travel as vapor. When you kill people, they become vapor. They fly around as vapor. Everyone's vapor. Right. Because if we don't, if we don't make everyone vapor, the audience is not going to know that this movie is about magic. (laughs) Well, what better time than to cover our muggle moments? So what's first up for you? Because mine are not super chronological. So some of these I have questions about. Okay. But I'll tell you one that I don't have a question about. Okay. This is stupid Snape flying out of the window as a black cloud. Yeah. I mean. What? Yeah. Also, if you can turn into a vapor, why would you break? The, why would it break the window? Can you just fly through the window? You're magical. Like, right. There's no consistency in the films with what magic is, what you can do, what yeah. you can't do. They don't mm-hmm. give a fuck. Yeah. They're just like polyjuice potion. It changes your voice, but yeah. it doesn't change your voice. It yeah. changes your clothes, but it doesn't change your clothes. They stripped an adult naked, but then the adult got his clothes back. Like. They don't care about continuity. Well, and I'll say it again. I said it when we covered this chapter in the book, I'm pretty sure, or maybe, no, I, I said it for the first time when we covered Order of the Phoenix, the movie, because that's the first time they do this garbage. This is a David Yates thing, definitely, Yeah, because that's his first movie. That's when he took over the movie franchise. It, The whole thing with the Battle of the Seven Potters is that Harry sees Voldemort flying beside him without a broom. And that's a big fucking deal that Voldemort can fly without a broom. And so these movies just made all the bad guys can turn into vapor and fly around. It's ridiculous. But the kids, when fire's lapping at their ankles, have to use brooms. Have to use brooms to fly away. What the fuck? Uh, 
Yeah. Okay. That's a good, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Another muggle moment. Okay. And I talked to you a little bit about this and you were like, nah, you didn't necessarily agree with me. Yeah. But Harry's like, listen, he's telling all the kids once he goes through the thing at Aberforth Bar, he's like, listen, I'm looking for something in Hogwarts. I'm not exactly sure what it is. It's going to be pretty small. And it's kind of a because the kids all look at him like that doesn't really narrow it down. Yeah. And Luna's like, what about the lost diadem of Ravenclaw? Yeah. It's not like he says it would be something notable. Right. It would be something like a trophy. It would be historically important to the world of magic. He literally says, I'm looking for something. I don't know what it is. It's probably pretty small. And Luna says, what about the lost diadem of Ravenclaw? And he goes, oh, absolutely. That's it. I believe you. Let's go. Let's pursue that. Yeah. So I rewatched that scene like two hours ago. And I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's they deliberately make it so little information so that they can have like a little joke with Seamus Finnegan where Harry says, I know that's not a lot to go on. And Seamus says, that's nothing to go on. You know, like I sounded like one of the Beatles. He's yeah. supposed to be Irish, but whatever. <laughs> it's a very clean old or man. Scottish. I don't know. Um, but like, it's literally zero information. And at least like when you first told me that, I think the only reason I was kind of defending that scene is that A, I remembered it as being more robust in the movie than it actually is. And B, I think I was remembering the book version as more sparse than it actually is. The films are drunk history version. <laughs> it's if you got someone drunk and if you got me drunk okay. and you asked me to tell you what this series was about. That's the screenplay for these movies. Okay. Drunk and then there's like an elf guy. And I, I don't know what some, what some happens like they, I think they bury him at the beach or something. And sa- I feel like there's sand. I don't know. Anyway. And then Harry's looking for this thing. And I want to say Luna tells him that it's that or something like this is yeah. how it is. How did you feel about, I don't have this on either of my lists, but like I said, I was just rewatching, you know, a little bit of this movie today. How did you feel about Luna, like, yelling at Harry on the stairs, Harry Potter, you listen to me right now, and making him stop because he keeps kind of brushing her off? How did you feel about it? I don't really care either way. I actually kind of love that moment. (laughs) It's something that's a complete addition to the movies, but I just, I think it's kind of great. So next on my list, or actually I should say the first muggle moment I have on my list, and like I said, these are not really chronological. (sighs) In the Michael posted a great meme about this on Discord today, actually. In the scene with the resurrection stone in the forest, why bring up Lupin's son if that storyline is literally never mentioned anywhere in the movie? It's the same as Tonk's brown hair. (laughs) You just put her in brown hair. Right. And you just never never talk about about it. He says, and Remus, your son, the meme that Michael posted to Discord is like an edit of what Lupin says after, which is, it's okay, Harry. He's never been talked about in the movies before or something to that effect. It's almost like they shot a lot more. And they cut the shit so out So there is a deleted scene that's actually the Harry Potter movie, since you watched Deathly Hallows Part 2, actually, because this happened on the 31st, apparently, went off of HBO Max and they're now on Peacock. But I guess they're going back to HBO Max in like a month anyway. So the version I was watching today is the one on Peacock includes what are technically deleted scenes, but have been a part of the broadcast whenever it was on TV. So I mentioned this 
the last movie when I talked about the scene with Petunia that's very yeah, nice. Yeah. There is a really short cutout scene with Lupin and Tonks where Tonks arrives and they find each other and they mention their kid. It's like an eight second scene. Yeah, it's a blip. The whole Tonks Lupin thing, if you never read the books, you'd have no idea what was going on there. Cheated. But I guess I'm like, why bring it why bring it up? If you're gonna omit that storyline, exactly. just omit it. Like yeah. It's just confusing at that point. Oh, we'll drop this in here for the hardcore fans who don't care that we chop their story to bits in a right. fucking neutral bullet. And it's not even like they bring up Teddy Lupin in the epilogue because, I mean, he's brought up in the book in the epilogue, but it's, there's no reference that they have to tie anything to. There's no point in it. There's no point. Why mention Cut it? That. It's just confusing. Yeah. How did Harry, when he goes into the room of requirement and mm-hmm. it's like the room of hidden things or whatever, Yeah. if he never put the diadem on... The butt. How does he just walk in, <laughs> go to a little cigar humidor, open it up, and it's like, boom, there it is. Because of Hollywood. <laughs> the audience doesn't know. They, they'll never I think, ask. I think, I think what's implied in the movie is that he has kind of seen the diadem in his mind's eye when he's been in Voldemort's mind, and that's how he finds it. Oh, God. But that's so dumb. Like, I much prefer the fact that he put this to the side. I mean, listen, Something like that, you know, they can't go back and include a shot in, you know, right? What is it, Half Blood Prince or hey, Order of the Phoenix or wherever it is that he? They can it. they can do a million and one flashbacks. Uh, just yeah. throw another flashback. Sure, in there. sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely possible. Yeah, yeah. Voldemort being able to feel when a Horcrux is destroyed <laughs> drives me fucking bonkers it's so telegraphed in this movie he's like because otherwise the audience won't know that the horcruxes are part of his soul because we never told you the whole story and the thing that i hate about it is that such a point is made in the books that he cannot feel when horcruxes are destroyed or at least that i think it's dumbledore i can't remember who says it they're like i don't think he can feel it when they're destroyed. Yeah. That's the whole thing is that this trio or Harry specifically is gaining on him and he doesn't even fucking know it. So for him to be able to feel when the Horcruxes are destroyed, like they keep intact the whole, you know, the dragon drops them off at, off his back. And it's like, Harry has these flashes and realizes that Voldemort's on to them. They keep that, which is great. Yeah. But if Voldemort can feel when Horcruxes are destroyed, he would have known that a long ass time exactly. ago. It makes no sense. That he would he have said, I wonder it. why I start getting these weird feelings. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> And it's not anything that takes up time. In fact, it would take less time in the movie to have him not aware yeah. that the Horcruxes Cruxes are being destroyed for God's sake. I really wish the most muggle thing in the world, what ruined this movie for me, is they completely butchered the scene of the dance between Voldemort and Harry and all the things oh, Harry says to Voldemort. I have so much to say about this. I have just save it, save it for me because I only have one thing in between where we are okay. and that. And it's actually King's Cross. (laughs) So listen, I agree with you. I think King's Cross looks great, but it's so short. And narratively, it only serves to be this in-between so that the audience knows that when Harry wakes up, he did in fact die a little bit. And it's not just, oh, he passed out or something. Like I I get, but 
King's Cross serves so much of a bigger purpose narratively in the book because we get so much of Dumbledore's side of things. We also just get this like, I don't know that it can be done because we get so much of this is internal to Harry and like a lot of things he's realizing and a lot of, yeah. I mean, to me, it's when Harry truly becomes like self-actualized is like in King's Cross. And then he goes back and he has all this confidence and he knows what the right thing, like to me, it just doesn't, King's Cross doesn't serve the correct purpose in it the movie. It does not in the films at all. As it does in the book. But if you had never you know, read the books, during that scene, you'd be like, what the fuck is even happening? Is this heaven? Is it purgatory? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It looks really great, but narratively it doesn't work for me. Okay. Now we got to talk about the rest of this movie, the dumpster fire that is the remainder of this movie. The scene that I wanted them to nail so bad was this dance between Voldemort and Harry, yes. where they've got the wands on each other, and he's like, oh, yeah? Oh, next you're going to tell me it's about love, just like Dumbledore? Yep. And then here's, here's another thing you didn't know, and here's another thing you didn't know. Here's yeah. another thing you didn't know. Yeah. They just shortened up. They're like, guess what? Snape betrayed you. Not my daughter, you bitch. The movie's over. Right. And there's no, there's no Harry saying, just try for some remorse. Like, there's no him giving Voldemort this one last chance and calling him Tom. And, like, yeah. instead, we get pitching off of one of the highest turrets and falling and flying around like smoke and their faces merging, which is just oh, such God. a... Bleh. And And we don't only get that insane omission of what you just said, like all of this dance between the two of them, this final conversation. But what I will never forgive David Yates for, or whoever was part of this decision, is the fact that when Voldemort dies, he turns into confetti when the whole goddamn point of the series is that he dies like a stupid man. Exactly. Like that he dies this mundane, it's literally called mundane in the book, this mundane death. No, instead it's all, uh, what's the guy from the stupid Marvel movie? Um, it's Thanos. Right. You know, the whole disappearing into digital dots thing. I hate that. He turns into vapor. Bellatrix has already tur- died some kind of supernatural death at Molly's hand, which I'm glad they kept the line. Not my daughter, you bitch. It's a great line. Yeah. Good on you keeping that line. Why does Bellatrix die like in a Tim Burton way? Is it just because it's Helena Bonham Carter and she's, you know, you're contractually obligated to like make some kind of Tim Burton reference if she's in your movie? Like what the fuck? You know, Nagini turns into smoke. Helena Bonham Carter like squeezes inward or something and Voldemort turns into confetti. All three of them were mortal flesh and bone. (sighs) creatures by giving them a supernatural death you have come you've not just missed the point you've completely invalidated the point yeah of the entire series so dumb what is wrong with these people oh my god it's it's unforgivable to me it's completely unforgivable i get it they need to sell tickets they need to sell popcorn this is the eighth harry potter movie 
did they actually for a second think that people wouldn't come see it if there wasn't Voldemort confetti? Like, people are going to see it. Here's the thing. They know people are going to see it, so it, they, they don't care. Ugh, I hate we that, We can turn though. Voldemort into a snake. We can turn him into confetti. We can have him make jokes. It doesn't matter. They've stuck with it. Look at the box office receipts from the first seven movies. I just want to believe in more artistic integrity than that. I want to Don't believe. Stop believing. That. <laughs> oh, stop. good. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's not that's Hollywood. Wonderful. Cool. My last humongous gripe. It's a biggie. Why is he breaking the Elder Wand and throwing it off the bridge? I instantly stopped and was like, wait, what? Yeah. It it's completely ruins the very end of the series. Yep. Which yeah. Which is like, I don't need this wand. Right. I'm going to use this wand to fix my wand. Right. That's the poetic beauty of it. I don't need this wand. I'm going to use it to fix my wand. And then I'm going to keep the elder wand in my possession and not use it and until I, I die, die a natural death. If nobody takes it from me, its power will be lost and it will be exactly. neutralized and it will just be a regular wand. Yes. What is, if he's going to break it and throw it off a bridge, somebody's going to find it, tape it back together and become the master of death. I can't do this. <laughs> I'm 44 years old. I know. I mean, it's because that is supposedly the way it's described in the book. That's supposedly the only way to end the power of the Elder Wand. You're telling me that for centuries that the, the death stick has existed. All somebody had to do is fucking snap it like a twig. Like, fuck like you, I've said before, David Yates. All I want is to talk to someone who's never read the series, <laughs> but has seen all of the movies and say, tell me what this is about. What is the Elder Wand? No, seriously, go ahead. Tell me what the Elder Wand is. Yeah. Tell me what Sirius's relationship was to Harry. Tell yeah. me about the Marauders. Yeah. How was Peter Pettigrew responsible for what he was... They, they wouldn't be able to tell you. There's no way you could piece it together into no. a feasible storyline. Well, and it's not just like, oh, my favorite things aren't shown in a movie and I'm disappointed. Like when we talk about the movie series as a whole, to me, it's just like, but the, the story that's told in the books and not just the expounding that can happen in books versus movies, but the actual literal just story points is so much better. It's so much better yeah. than the story that you're telling in these movies. And with a few different decisions, you could have told the same story, man. But instead you watered it down at, at best you watered it down at worst you completely invalidated the central thesis of the series, which besides love being the most powerful magic, the other central thesis is that Voldemort did himself in with his own hubris and the fact that he believed himself to be bigger than an ordinary man and that he was not anything but an ordinary man. And it's the payoff of the author leaving breadcrumbs, you yeah. picking them up and then having the great reveal at the end. There's no reveal. No. It's just, it's, these movies are telling the story of the books the way little kids tell stories. Yeah. And then I saw a bird and it was sitting on a, a thing and then it flew away, but my friend had a ball and it was red. And then I went inside, like there's no, yeah. it's just a, a series of statements with no cohesive storyline. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So let's get into some more of the acting part of the movie. Yes. How about our top three best casting decisions? Yeah. 
Who's your first one? So my first is Warwick Davis as Grip Hook. Yes, and now, Flitwick. Originally, in the first movies when we saw Grip Hook, it was played by Vern Troyers, who people know as Mini Me in the Austin Powers. So movies. he actually like made it to like hair and makeup film scenes. With the, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, okay, he was Grip Hook. Okay, but he didn't do the voice. He was one of only two Americans cast because ah, J.K. wanted an all British cast. Yeah. So the voice was ADR. It was dubbed over, but he physically played Grip Hook. Interesting. Well. Vern, as we found out during this time in the news Yikes. and stuff, had like quite a bit of problems with drinking and also got into some problems with like having a sex tape out there. And he wasn't the most popular name that you wanted associated with your like multi million dollar movie for kids. I also yeah. <laughs> don't think he had his shit together enough to like be a working actor anymore at Interesting. that point. Interesting. Okay. So the obvious decision is well, let Warwick play it. Yeah. And so I was reading an interview with Warwick Davis because I went down the rabbit hole for this and I'm such a fan of WD. (laughs) And he said he really loved the chance to play Grip Hook because he said it's such a nuanced character. Yes. And such a complicated sort of conflicting and polarizing character that it gave him a chance to show his acting chops. Like I was saying earlier, more than most of his roles. Yes. That's really cool that Warwick Davis called Grip Hook a polarizing character. I I don't know if he called him polarizing, but he definitely called him like complex and complicated. Because I completely agree. I think that Grip Hook is a very complex character. When we covered the whole Gringotts, escape from Gringotts, like situation from the book, I remember us talking about the fact that like, yes, Grip Hook double crosses them, but they double crossed him first. Like, I'm sorry. You know, if we're going to say Grip Hook is wrong for doing that, then so is the trio. Exactly. You know, so I think that's a really interesting point. So my first one is Kieran Hines. I have him on my list too. Dumbledore, Aberforth. Now I could not place him when I saw pictures of him not as Aberforth, which my God, I would never think those are the same people. Like the, wow, he looks totally different. But when I saw the actors like headshot, I was like, oh, I know I've seen him in something. And you know what it is? It's Miss Pettigrew lives for a day is what I've seen him in. And probably a couple of other things too. Cause I think he's like pretty fucking famous. Um, and he was great in Miss Pettigrew lives for a day, which is a really charming movie if you haven't seen it. Um, but as Aberforth, I mean, he's gruff and I feel like this is an actor who, even if he hadn't read the series, wasn't a fan of the series. This is an actor who at least read this book and got to know Aberforth. And had a developed character. Yeah. I firmly believe that. I think that his attitude towards Albus when he talks about Albus is exactly right. Who's next for you? So we both shared that one. So that yeah. was my second one. My third one is John Hurt as Ollivander. Oh, God. He's I mean, so John Hurt's good. such a master anyway. He's so good. But yeah, I think he's absolutely great as Ollivander. He's so good. My second was Kelly McDonald as the Grey Lady or Helena Ravenclaw. She does not answer to that name of the Grey Lady. I think she looked the part of being like regal and also like kind of haughty. Yeah, she also looked beautiful, but not over the top hot. Yes, yes. There's something about... I want to say that they were considering Kate Winslet for that role, actually, which can you imagine like incredible Oscar winning Kate Winslet 
in one of the Harry Potter movies for like four minutes. Like, no, I don't think well, so. I mean, they do it to other very famous actors. So. I mean, John Hurt's a great example, actually. Um, but I just think that Kelly McDonald was perfect. And it, it's incredibly brief, her performance, but it's very nuanced. Like, she kind of is a little bit childlike. She's a little bit scared, but then she's also like very angry and, and she's old into fashioned her- and kind of royal too. Yes, yeah. I think she did a great job. And then my final one, haircut aside, is Benedict Clark as young Snape. Now listen, he doesn't have a single line. We barely see him. I just for image alone He's amazing. He looks yeah, he's perfect. Great. He is a full grown man at this point and very handsome. Really? Very handsome. Good Look at for this you. picture. Look at you, fella. Incredibly handsome. And with blue eyes. So he must have been wearing contacts. Yeah. So, yeah. Good casting. Now it's time for us to each recast. This is our final recast. I mean, I guess maybe we could recast the Fantastic Beast movies, but this is our final yeah. recast of the original Harry Potter movies. You know, so I hope you went big or else you're going to have to go home. I went big. Who are I, you recasting? You know I have a habit of recasting British actors with American actors. Yeah. It's not intentional. It's just I know more American actors. Of course. Yes. And that is, as much as I loved uh, Kieran Hines, mm-hmm. I'm going to recast Aberforth Dumbledore okay. with Robin Williams. Oh, so you're recasting someone from Beyond the Grave as well. Wow. Yes. He would be... He would be interesting. Now, I also think you could recast Ollivander as Robin Williams. Now, that one I'm on board with. Now, that one's a little bit more obvious. Like, Mm. it'd be a more natural choice. Mm -hmm. But if you've seen Robin in things like The Fisher King, you... You know that he can play serious oh, in a very he wonderful way. Can Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams. I mean, he's got yeah had R.I.P. a very significant dramatic um, history. Now, Robin Williams, if I'm not mistaken, really, really like picketed for the role of if I think Hagrid when they were initially casting yeah. these movies and because he was American, JK Rowling said, absolutely not. Yeah. But he, I mean, I, it's one of those stories I've always read where he like called the studio and called JK Rowling and was like, I really would be perfect for this. Like really campaign. He could have done the character. Like he could have done the character justice, I think, oh, but I don't think they could have got better than who they got. I mean, he's so good because he's Hagrid, already yeah. a big dude. So mm-hmm. all they had to do was just kind of puff him up. Robin was not a big dude. No. They would have had to really like CGI the shit out of him. Yeah. But I mean, that's that's interesting. I loved Robin Williams. God, that was a sad day when he died. So I also went big with the last recast in the sense that I'm recasting my favorite character of the series. Lupin. I'm recasting Lupin. I love David Thewlis. I think he does a great job as Lupin. The very little of Lupin that we get in the movies. I think he did as he was directed to do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was like acting choices that that fucked it up. Um, now, this is you would never waste this actor on the amount of screen time that Lupin gets in the original right. series. This would have to be like something more fleshed out. I'm recasting one of my favorite all time actors alive today. Lee Pace, another American. Oh, nice. He'd be a great Lupin, would he well, not? Well, he's also really tall. He's also very and tall. And so, like, he would make a pretty scary werewolf. He would make a terrifying werewolf. Werewolf. Yeah. Right? I just think, like, there's a nuance of bookishness with 
authority. And Lee Pace is a very internal actor. Very, very. He's someone who, like, as they say in the biz, acts from the inside out. Yes. And as I was kind of, because in my notes, I always include, like, pictures for all of these. And I saw that Lee Pace just got married. Who did he marry? He married a longtime boyfriend, I guess. Like, long, long, long time. Like, wow. years and years and years. So, you know, listen. Congratulations, Congratulations, Mr. Pace. Lee Pace. You'd make an amazing Lupin. Mr. Pace. Mr. Pace. Lee. Lee. Buddy, come on, play Lupin. And yes, I that's prob- I don't think it's the only time I've cast an American on the recast, but there we go. It's time for our cinematic marriage lessons. Cinematic marriage. <laughs> I want you to go first. So, because I was thinking so much about Mr. Davis, WD-40, Warwick. Yeah, sure. Uh, I decided to go with one of my favorite movies of all time, Willow. Yes, okay. It's getting its own TV series dropping in November on Disney+. Plus. Oh, is that when it's coming? So excited. Oh, yeah. Probably the most excited I've ever been for a television show. I would, yeah, that makes sense. And my marriage lesson is to help your partner fulfill their destiny. Oh. And this is two ways from Willow. One is his love for Alora Dannon. So when he plucks this baby out of the river, yeah. he says, under no circumstances has anyone in this family to fall in love with that baby. And he's the one that falls in love with the baby. Of course. But he knows, like, okay, she's got this mark. She's a daikini. We need to take her to the daikini crossroads so she can go back with her people. She doesn't belong in this fucking elfin land, you know? <laughs> So when he takes her there, the more he learns about her, he realizes that he has to support her for what she's really supposed to be. The person that's going to take down Queen Bav Morda in the prophecy. Oh. Well, but also it's his wife, Kaya. And one of the best scenes in Willow, one of my favorite scenes in Willow is when he's hugging Kaya goodbye. Like, it's been decided by the High Eldwin and everything that Willow and Migosh and Burblecut and all these cats are going to have to take Alora Dannon to the Daikini Crossroads. <laughs> you are speaking another language <laughs> at this point. And, and Kaya hugs him. And she and the actress, like, real tears come out of her eyes. And she's looking at him. And she's looking at him like, I may never see you again because mm. she knows the journey's dangerous. But she's so proud of him at the oh, same time. That's And beautiful. she knows... That all Willow wants to do is he wants to be great. And, you know, the High Eldwin says to him, more than anyone in the village, you have the power to become a great sorcerer, but you lack your belief in yourself. You don't trust yourself. Yeah. She knows this about her husband, too. Yeah. You know that Willow just wants respect. He wants to be seen as who he is, which I think he gets to be in this upcoming series. Yeah. And just the pride she has in her eyes. She's like, he needs to do this. Oh, that's and so that's so like, beautiful. that's my thing. Support each other's like missions and their destiny and their callings. This is definitely something that you've done for me with, you know, kind of taking over baby duties so that I can get literal duties and Lots duties, duties. Yeah. Um, so that I can get back on stage and reprise this role that was cut short by the pandemic that was very, very depressing for me when it was yeah. cut short because I was having so much fun in the show. And you are the one, you kind of did exactly this because I remember sitting outside with you and saying like, 
I'm like, should I, should I accept this? Should I say yes? Should I do this? Like I'm worried and I'm worried because it's been a really long time since I've been on stage. I'm worried about being able to remember my lines and my blocking. Like it's been two and a half years. Like what if I just don't have the memory for that shit anymore? You know? And I'm worried about you having to take on so much. Cause this is, you go to work all day, you come home and you're single parenting until she goes to bed. Yeah. And it's not an easy time of day for her because she's usually very overtired. Yeah. And and you said, you have to do this. Like, it will be fine. It's who you are. It's what you do. You're it's, an actress. You have to do yeah. it. So, very good. Very good. Willow. Willow. I stole the baby. <laughs> My cinematic marriage lesson comes from the seminal 1999 classic, the mummy. Of course. <laughs> the mummy is your willow. The mummy willow is, is my mummy. My willow. You have never seen the mummy? Like, what is this again? I worked at a movie theater. I was the assistant manager at a movie theater. And it was what they call a second run house. Or what we affectionately refer to as the dollar fifty theater. Mm-hmm. That's movies play on the big screen. They get faded out instead of just being gone forever from the big screen. They move to the second run house. Okay, so I worked at a three screen dollar fifty movie. We had the Mummy, I think, for like almost a year, like ten months. It was the longest we'd ever had one film going. Rightfully so. And there were people that came and saw it dozens and dozens of times. I would have been actually one of the for people. our film buff fans. A lady that plays the blonde headed prostitute. In Blue Velvet. I thought you were going to say The Mummy. I was like, uh. (laughs) Wrong Mummy. In Blue Velvet, that actress lives in our town, or did at the time. She came and saw it, I want to say, over 40 times. No shit. Every single day. Listen. And sometimes she would sit through two or three screenings of it. If you're going to see a movie daily, it should probably be 1999's The Mummy. like all the movies back then, because I was also setting up projection and stuff. And popping in to look at him in the theater and looking at him like, I've seen The Mummy in two-minute chunks completely out of order. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, we need to I really need this. to give it another chance. You really need when to give it, it another plain, chance. When it was playing, I was in my early 20s, and I was like, this is the stupidest shit I've ever seen. I don't yeah. care about it. The reason why The Mummy has stood the test of time, and it truly has, like people, myself included, really love this movie and this has to do with my marriage lesson is the fact that for its time in the late 90s and honestly even by today's standards you have a female lead who is written as in an action movie who is written as essentially an equal to her male counterpart she's just as fleshed out as him neither of them are super fleshed out yeah but it's not the man is super fleshed out and she's just right. a trophy, yeah. you know, like they're just as fleshed out as each other. They really work as a team. The entire movie, they have great chemistry. They're both a beautiful. Yeah. Gorgeous. You know, my God. So my marriage lesson from the mummy is play to your individual strengths to make you as a couple stronger because, you know, you have Rick, Brendan Fraser, who's incredible. Who's of course like, His strengths are physical and like he's a sharpshooter and he's, you know, a 
man and swings from things and punches people and all of that. And then you have Evelyn and she's a librarian, but she's also fucking brilliant. And so each of them saves the day in their own ways, but separately they would have never saved the day with one strength or the other. It was only when they were together. That's beautiful. Doesn't she start out as having a little bit of like secretary porn Sort of look about her, like glasses on the end of her nose and like a collared shirt. Yes. But then as the movie goes on, she's a little bit more like rugged adventurer woman. I mean, I would say all of that is accurate. It also like takes place in the like 30s. That's when the Indiana 40s. Jones movies it's take It's very, yeah. in, like it's, it's very referential to Indiana Jones. Like there's a whole lot of that. Yeah. But it's, you know, so I mean, costume wise, it's, it's appropriate, but it's a hilarious movie and an appropriately scary movie and it's just brilliant guess what mummy's back open at universal is it yep a friend of mine on a different (gasps) discord was saying that it's open that it's running really well Mm. and that they've like improved the video improved some of the effects okay mummy's back that is welcome news fun fact about the mummy billy zane is not in the mummy and he wants everyone to know that why do people oh because the that guy who one plays guy Emotep. looks so much like Emotep Billy Zane. does look yeah. a lot like Billy Zane. I will say that. I mean, Billy Zane, if they made a remake, would be an amazing Emotep. But I mean, the original actor who played Emotep is also great. When I so met Billy Zane and I told you that story about how he gave me an autograph. Yes. My friend, he said, what is you? So I have a question for you guys. What is your favorite Billy Zane movie? And I said, Titanic. And I thought my friend Eric was going to say tombstone instead he said the mummy and billy zane billy zane said i was not in the goddamn mummy and then when he signed the autograph he signed billy zane not the mummy god you gotta love a a man with a sense of humor about himself good old billy z so anyway watch the mummy it's so good so let me give a quick thank you to our marauders Sophie Badger, who we found out that is her actual name. Sophie Badger don't give a shit. Sophie Badger don't give a fuck. Arius Jacks, Buddy Hoagland, Kit and Demi, Larissa Oatman, Senior Jorgensen, who it's her birthday the day we record this. Happy birthday, birthday, Senior. Happy, happy birthday. And also... A newlywed senior Jorgensen. Congratulations. Congratulations. We saw the picture. Stunning. So beautiful. Amy Sophia Mayer, Hannah Gibbs Abolvenita, Michael Terry, Pete Collins, Ben Clark, Heather Bevels, Dean Heath, Josh Bailey, Sarah Epting, Mallory Gallagher, Jennifer Ayers, Daniel Marks, Martha, what you <laughs> Brian Brown, not from Cleveland, Faith Kenfield, Josh Kennedy, Maeve Richards, Amber Biggs, Chris White, Kelly Moore, Natalia Ward, Nick Tillman, Melissa Hunter, Lindsay Prestage, Samantha Tillman, Flavia Diaz, Wild Blue Raven, Cody Juris, Sherilyn Cheney, and Juice. Natalia Ward has been sending me pictures from, she's gone on kind of a tour. She's on holiday. She's on holiday and she has gone to all of these different shooting locations for the Harry Potter movies. So like where they shot the Hogwarts Express, like long shots. I saw this in Discord. So beautiful. When you said different shooting locations, I thought, what is she doing in America? (laughs) Oh, it's so Mm. accurate. Mm. My God. So next week we're going to be doing Prophecy Roundup 
owl post kinds of things. Now we have been getting your submissions for like Harry Potter head cannons and how you discovered the series. We've gotten some really beautiful stuff to that. Um, that is going to be a separate episode. We want to have like a whole episode with those. Yeah. So keep those coming. And also you still have time to send in your owl post episodes. When this episode goes live, it'll be Tuesday. You will have, you know, three, four days yep. to send us um, any other wrap up questions for Deathly Hallows specifically. Or the suggestions or for hot wands. Suggestions for hot wands because after our Prophecy Roundup owl post episode, we are doing our own version of hot ones called hot wands. Yes. Now, international listeners, you may not be as familiar with hot ones. A lot of our our UK friends in Discord were not familiar with hot ones or even American listeners might not be familiar with it. Just look it up on YouTube, watch a few minutes of just one of the many 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 episodes and you will get the gist yeah. of it. Exciting news. We have mentioned our our wonderful patron and friend Brendan Carter on the show before. Brendan has very, very kindly offered to film our Hot Wands That's right. episode for us, along with a couple of other very dear friends of ours. Yeah, of ours. a film company now. Exactly. With like the good shit equipment and like lighting and yeah. stuff. So we will also be filming it and we'll figure out how we're going to get that to you. If it's going to be a patrons only thing or if it's going to be something available to everyone, we're not sure yet. And this is why I'm a Bren Stan. <laughs> Bren Stan. Bren Stan Carter. <laughs> <laughs> So, so many fun things on the horizon for us. Any parting words after Deathly Hallows Part 2, the movie? Well, like they say in Hawaii, aloha mora. Mm-hmm.